Succession planning is one of the biggest challenges facing any farming family. Nikki Marnie is a cattle producer from central Queensland. Nikki and her husband Peter and their four children live on the 9,500 hectare cattle station Garanda, 500 kilometres northwest of Brisbane. They run 3,500 stud and commercial cattle and are proud to be Santa Gertrudes stud number three. Nikki is a fourth generation Joyce to run Garanda. The Joyce family emigrated from Ireland in the 1800s and settled in the rich Dawson Valley of central Queensland following in the footsteps of Ludwig Leichhardt. The Garanda stud started in 1953 by purchasing a Santa Gertrudis bull from King Ranch in the United States. Nikki's parents, Bernard and Louise, proudly promoted the Santa breed focusing on an animal suited to the environment and one that produced plenty of beef. Nikki has three siblings, so succession planning was a genuine issue for the family. After years of discussion, it was decided Nikki and Peter would run Garanda. Welcome to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. It's a podcast about the nuts and bolts of life in rural Australia, the good, the bad and the beautiful. I'm here at Garanda Station with Nikki Marnie. And Nikki, first of all, thank you very much for letting me come here. The name Garanda, what does it actually mean? So it means painted mountains or rocky mountains, as far as we can establish in the local Indigenous language. Yeah, and your family go back many, many generations. I think you're actually, you're the fourth generation and your children are the fifth generation of Joyce's on Garanda. Paint me a picture of what Painted Mountain means to you. It's it's more of a feeling. We were talking about it this morning and it's not that it looks spectacular. It, it feels spectacular and um, we all have a very strong connection to the land and we're quite passionate about the rocks and the living landscape. So its uh, ranges all, extend all the way up a meandering river up the valley and on both sides that's most of our natural boundary there's a lot of sandstone in there and it just it looks beautiful it feels beautiful the valleys are fertile and it's a a complete system is it good cattle country yeah it's excellent it's safe cattle country more than anything else so you can hold you can hold over winter yes it gets dry but we can still manage to carry things through most people in Australia in the cattle industry would know the name Garanda and as you drive in through the gates it's got Garanda 1953 and a big picture of a Santa Gertrudis bull. So that really the transition from Herefords and Shorthorns sort of started in the, around about 1953. What was the impetus to get into Boss Indicus? Herefords, obviously British breeds were used everywhere because that's all everyone knew. There was a little bit of Nibu influence coming in but it was hard to get a hold of other cattle as well so my family had a quarter horse stud here and my grandfather spent some time in India working on quarter horse studs over there and they went to America and that was when King Ranch had just developed the Santa Gertrudis breed over there so they got a little bit excited about what this could mean because that you know with the Herefords it was a constant mustering operation just to clear the ticks so they'd bring them down they couldn't walk them in the middle of the day they had to rest them they would dip them and then they would take them back and they would once they'd finished they would start again so 
for them, tick resistance was life-changing. So it was Barney Joyce and Raoul Joyce that brought in the early Santa Gertrudis and their studs number two and three, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So that at that point, they had split up the holdings. They still operated together, but they split up so they could be two separate studs. So stud number two and stud number three, and stud number one was King Ranch. They had holdings here in Australia. And were they seen as crazy, bringing in uh, Santa Gertrudis or Bosindicus? I know the Brahmins came in very early, but was it a revolutionary thing to do? Yeah, they, they were considered crazy because everyone thought these things were elephants. And the reality is the Santa Gertrudis that were imported into Australia then were quite different to what the breed looks like today. They were large and slabby compared to what the breed does look like today and obviously big horns so they would have just looked so completely different mm. to what people knew before and it was it was a big change so any big change that happens rurally is quite obvious because everyone knows what everyone else is doing and they just want to watch and see and what do you think their reaction was i mean the, the sticky beaking over the fence what did your father and your grandfather tell you about the reaction to the animals um i think there was a little bit of um, anger at at some of at some of the point. There was a bit of anger about what are these strange things you are bringing in, and we don't trust this. But then slowly, people actually came around, and they were quite expensive too compared to other cattle to start with, because there was a monopoly on genetics in Australia. Because after the first um, shipment or couple of shipments, the Australian government um, quarantined the import, so you couldn't import for several years. So King Ranch, Garanda and Eichfold Station really had those genetics and they could get excellent prices for those cattle. Yeah, and I think your dad was pretty fanatical about his Santas. Uh, yeah, no, he, he definitely <laughs> loved them. And, well, he, I think he loved the breed, so he wanted to promote the breed in Australia. Dad was very much about industry first, breed second, and your own stud was just part of that building block. So he just really was passionate about promoting the breed and what it could do for people. What did he think it could do for the people or for the industry? So he focused on fertility, um, weight gain and basically doing ability on rough country. So their main focus was northern Australia. So Mm. here and north, I think. The coastal country, they needed a lot more tick resistance. So the Brahmins did very well there and eventually the droughties. Um, The main area that Santa Gertrudis moved into was that western inland area and north and it started to make a real impact and and he grew up on the property did he always want to be on the property and what did his family happen to his side of the family in terms of properties around the area so garanda was involved a lot of holdings initially Mm. so the boys were able to well the boys there were four sons in so dad had three brothers um donald the eldest brother he uh took over a block at Taroom, so just up the river, and the other two brothers were just across the river Mm. here on other blocks. Um, They all did work together during the beef depression and during the droughts. They had their separate holdings, but they worked together until they were able to separate and start managing their own properties. And we we were talking about succession today because we've got five generations of, of, of Joyce's on this country. Was the succession, was the dividing up of the country in those days, was that an easy part for them? I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect they all just got told what was going to happen. 
Um, but they they were able to do that very early. You know, my grandfather didn't wait to retire to start doing that. He did keep coming back and possibly thinking he was giving them guidance. Um, but they were able, all of those boys were able to build their places up right from a very early age. So dad had just come back from Vietnam when he started managing here. Um, so for him, it was important that all of us did get uh, the opportunity to, if we wanted to be on the land, to be able to learn and do it for ourselves from an early stage and not waiting till we're 40, 50, 60 before we're even starting. And tell me about Bernard, your father's wife, Louise. Where did he meet her? Mum's father was actually related somehow to the Joyce's and he, um, he'd been a ringer up here in his early days and he actually used to write articles for the paperback down in Melbourne. Anyway, mum, I can't remember, mum had just finished uni or been on a trip overseas or something and so he said, look, I'm going to visit all the relatives in Queensland, come with me. So she did. So Garanda was on the itinerary and they, um, she eventually met dad, Burnett, but um, he wasn't here on that trip but she eventually met him and then he turned up in Melbourne at a wedding and said, I need a date. And uh, so she went... She went as his partner and they communicated via letters and I can't remember but I think they only actually saw each other for a total of 10 or 14 days or something over a period of several years before they were married. And and she, Louise came up here? My mum was a feminist right from the word go, I think, so she, she just wanted to prove she could do anything and she just loved the thought that she could just get out into this... I think she considered herself to be a pioneer and, yeah, yeah no, she, she really jumped at the chance to be doing something what exciting, I think, as far as she considered. It was something really exciting and different. What was sort of their relationship when they were running Garanda in those early days? It was complicated because there was still the influence of my grandparents, mm. obviously. My dad, at some point, did have to basically stand up for his family there was a point where and that was excellent because I know that some people would struggle to do that against their own family to say no this is my family and my operation now but he was also quite um, protective of his own family in that when once mum moved here he considered her to be this is her family now and so basically he didn't like her going back down to Melbourne to visit her parents because it, he did consider, like, well, this is us, we are the team now. Mm-hmm. And they they did. They made an amazing team. They Mum just decided that if you can't beat them, join them. So she just took whatever Dad's interests were and just ran with them and really complimented him. So when it came to, for example, promoting Santa Gertrudis, Mum loved taking photographs. Yeah. So she just thought, right, well, I'm moving into this. I'll take photos of cattle and promote promote my husband, promote the brand, promote the breed, yeah. and and she loved writing. So she would write articles. And... and she was a correspondent for the US Tribune. Yeah, so she started, I, I think she probably did a report on a Congress tour or something for the Santa Gertrudis mm. Journal. And, um, yeah, so basically she was asked just to make some contributions and then some other newspapers wanted to print them, so... For a while, she just fed fed the news over that way, and it trickled out everywhere else. And I bet the Santa Gertrudis breed in Australia was was absolutely thrilled that they were getting international coverage. Yeah, it was. So, Australian Santa Gertrudis 
breeders did develop a very strong reputation for their classification standards, but also the fact that they were promoted as that. So they kept a very tight hold on how they allowed that breed to develop, and it was well publicised. Um, and one of the other things Mum did do, um, speaking of her as a true feminist, she felt right from the word go that women in the breed or the country were just not promoted enough. So Garanda took out two pages every Santa Gertrudis journal and they were the ladies' pages. So that was all that was in them. There was no, no it wasn't cattle promotion, it was about ladies in the breed. So that, that went on for years in the Santa Gertrudis journal until a few more people became interested in starting actually promoting women in agriculture. So she wasn't just the woman behind the man. I know. So mum definitely had her own interests. Yeah. So, uh, And education was one of her interests. She's got four little kids, three girls and a boy. When it came to our schooling, it was a long drive to get to the school bus, which would have written mum out from the workforce anyway, just mm. getting us to and from the bus every day. Um, and we needed, at the time, there was a fairly big staff here, so they needed a cook. And mum was not a fan of cooking. So... <laughs> She decided, so because uh, I think Dad basically offered her a governess and she said, well, get me a cook and I'll teach the kids, basically. So, and we became her project and she just loved it. She wasn't a teacher at all, obviously, well, no, not a trained teacher. But when mum, when mum focuses on something, she's going to give it everything she's got and she just was very creative and we did not just do English and maths and science. Every extracurricular subject there was, she taught us, she taught us the piano which she knew but then she taught herself the guitar and made us all learn the guitar we had to do every science experiment that was not required Uh, we we did everything art yes so she was very passionate about it when you talk to a lot of people who grew up in the country and they did distance ed or their parents taught them or they had governesses half the time they had their ear you know out the out the door or they were scurrying down to the bush was that did you like being in the classroom or did you did you prefer to be out in the country we definitely preferred to be outside but um mum was very clever about that we started first thing in the morning so our mm. breakfast was at five thirty or something so we started school then and we were finished by lunchtime so that meant we had the afternoon to be able to go outside and do whatever or help out um and then what happened was when other people came sometimes my mum's mother used to come up here my grandmother and we had french windows on our classroom and we didn't stay in the classroom very long because she would start getting mad and we'd just jump out the windows and off we'd go (laughs) nikki marnie says she loved growing up on garanda but life on the land wasn't always easy You've got two sisters and a brother. Were you a, a, a close team? Yes, we were. We were very much a, a tight team and we did plenty of fighting, naturally, but um, but we did everything together. So, you know, we were, we were all we had, so we had no choice with who our playmates were. We've always had a revolving door of other people coming through here, internationals, other families with kids, and we did learn to stick stick together in that um, we realised we were more similar than we were. We had more similarities with each other than with other people. 
but um, we also loved all the same things. We pretty much embraced mm. everything mum and dad did and mm. just went all, yeah. Did you love cattle as a kid? Yes. It's pos- it's quite possible we learnt to love cattle. I know that, um, you know, we, we all loved cattle. Some of us didn't like working cattle so much. Like it, um, I know my sister, one of my sisters had, was very challenged with directions and she told me only just the other day that we used to, because we'd go out into these massive paddocks and you'd just get on horses and you'd split up and you'd get the direction of where you're supposed to end up. And she said... Well, I just used to cry my eyes out from when we separated to when we ended up at the dam together, and I just hoped that I got to the dam. I don't even know if I passed any cattle. <laughs> and I think your father was very good at giving direction and didn't suffer fools gladly, but your dad didn't mind having girls working on the farm. No. So a re- a re- when we were very little, we still had a mostly Indigenous stock camp here and we had a couple of other ringers, usually a head stockman. But over a period of time, that, that gradually changed and we more and more became dominant with, dominated by female staff. So obviously we, we were here and we were, we were treated well by all the other staff as to, as to whether they liked us hanging around is another story. I don't know. Um, but eventually we ended up, our main staff ended up being girls and... I'm not sure why that was, but certainly with machinery, I know my dad appreciated how much more observant and softer they were on machinery, tractors and such, and just knowing, just hearing, like, oh, that sounds a bit different, we'll stop, and and being a bit more observant with stock. And we also became considered a safe place for females to come and work. So I know nowadays when we have um, university kids come over where it's predominantly females and I asked one of the lecturers in France why that was and he said well actually on our on our books you're considered a safe place for females to work. And do you think that came from your mum or your dad or where did that sort of drive A to employ females? You've just said they had trades he liked but where do you think that drive came from? So my mum yeah my mum as I said was definitely a feminist and we used to all called dad a feminist but he was probably more of an equal opportunity employer he didn't care what you were as long as you could actually get in and get the job done he also though did consider that you had to be a gentleman so it was one of the things that the more junior the staff you had to go ahead and do things like open gates but if there was a female on the team the men were expected to open the gates for the female still so that was quite interesting in hindsight but Dad just considered anyone that could work with cattle and was interested should be given a go, regardless of whether they were male or female. Did you enjoy working as a, as a youngster on, on the property? We loved it, but I think we were all quietly terrified most of the time that we'd get something wrong because mm. there was no holding back. You know, we'd certainly hear about it. Mm. So everyone, I think, really just wanted to wanted to please, and but we all we all loved it in that we loved being here, we loved the lifestyle. My dad was heavily into bush tucker, like he'd learnt off all the Indigenous stock um, stock people how to track what foods you could eat, and he, he just taught the whole time. So if anyone was interested, he would be teaching about what those trees were, what worms you could get out of that tree and how you eat them and how you cook them. Mm. So everything for him was a teaching opportunity. So if he had anyone who was interested... Were you interested? We were, yeah. So we that's probably the one thing we all have in common is yeah. we do love um, 
the environmental side of things, the conservation side of things, the flora, the fauna, the geology, that's what most gets us about the land. And obviously, yes, we love we love cattle, we love horses, we love sanders, but it's it's where it all fits into that ecosystem that's probably the the main thing that we all share in common. And who was the relative that was really involved in um, the native plants? So my grand, both of my grandparents were amateur botanists yeah. and conservationists. So they did set aside huge tracts of land that, um, for conservation. And at one point when they, because this was all crown lease, so when the soldier settlement scheme was happening and they wanted to take small portions of land mm. away and use it for soldier settlement, my grandfather insisted that they take a whole lot and just turn it into national park and not to put people onto that country because they just they would wreck the country and they would just never make a living out of it mm. so they they actually sacrificed half of garanda at that time to be able to turn some of it into national park and the rest into soldier settlement and did you have an ambition to come back onto the property at all did you think that this would be your destiny so I think we all we all thought we'd love to be here. Yeah. We all we all also realised that it quite possibly wasn't possible with four of us um, coming on. Dad was very big about education, and we we certainly were under no pressure. But he encouraged all of us to go and do what we wanted to, so we had something else to fall back on because we all couldn't just be back here. I think we all had an interest. So I remember in grade 10 or grade 11, my English teacher said, right, we're going to do goal setting. And so I sat down and I wrote my goal down and handed it in to her. And it was, I want to be married by the time I'm 24 and have four children and live on a property. And she said, well, that's hardly a goal. You need to go back and write another one. So I thought, "Mm, well, she's an English teacher. So I went back and I said, I'd like to go to university and become a teacher and teach English. And so... Passed in. Yeah, she was much happier with that goal. <laughs> but the goal of being married by 24, have four kids and live on the property, well, that was your goal and you've achieved it. Well, I know. So I thought, well, uh, just because I haven't written it down for her, but, it, you know, I, d- I think at the time we d- we all felt like that. We all thought we want to be back. We knew that we couldn't necessarily be here, but we wanted to have that same life that we had. Were you aware of the difficulties that there was in dividing up the property or properties for, between four kids to to have a, a viable living for all of them? We did. Dad was like right from the word go. We were all um, paid. We we didn't have um, extensive discussions about succession as stuff mm. uh, as such. Sorry, but we he certainly made it clear that we couldn't all be come back here. So he wanted us to go and find out what we wanted in life and then at some point we would have a discussion about do we acquire more land, do you know, how, how do we help you guys into something else if that's possible. But he did have very basic discussions. We didn't know the finances or anything like that. We probably didn't know when they really struggled but we knew things were tight um, and they and they really were tight. I mean, prior to your birth, the seventies, we had terrible drought and and the beef depression. I mean, people were being paid to shoot cattle. Yeah, that's right. So I know when we were little, it it was tight, yeah. and mostly that's probably through photos. Like I don't remember feeling like things were mm. rough, but definitely through photos, we're cutting prickly pear and old bottle trees just for cattle feed and doing a lot of. Um, supplement feeding of the lick brocks when they first came out. 
and so yeah, we we did have a real sense. And I think at the time when we were going to school, it was it was still quite tight. Mm. And Dad did probably feel that there wasn't enough money in agriculture for it to warrant all of us to want to come back mm. to it. When I went to university, I did study agricultural economics, thinking, well, here's a way for me to work in the field. And I probably, you know, my first job was a um, was a project consultant, was a agriculture consultant in project management. And I did probably think that's where I would be. Um, so yeah, we all we all certainly got a sense of go away, do something else, and you can if you if you happen to end up back here, that's also what you can do. Nikki met her husband Peter Marnie at university, but it wasn't the first time that they'd been in the same classroom. We're actually in the same school of the air class, but we don't remember each other at all. There's photos of us in grade one in the same photo. We had the same friends, but we don't ever recall coming across each other. So how old were you when you got together? Uh, Lordy, 20? Yes, we must have been, yes. Because 24 is approaching. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, so I'd, so I'd, I'd done a year and then I went travelling overseas for a year. Mm. Um, Peter had started in arts and Spanish, of all things. He wanted to be a spy. He knew, the only thing he knew, the only thing he knew he didn't want to be was a farmer. And yeah, and he, but he came from a property at Blackall. <laughs> he did, yes. So they um, were on a sheep and cattle block yeah. at Blackall. But he just loved, he loved building things. He loved the thought of mapping. He loved the thought of what you could do with technology. He had visions of yeah. one day being able to have something in cattle and not having fences and knowing where they are. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing that, as a kid, he just thought, wouldn't that be amazing? Because he hated going out and having to look for them in the trees. So he started off doing arts and economics, and some of the people in agriculture economics saw him and noticed he was wearing R.M. Williams boots, and they said, I think you're in the wrong course. So when I came back in second year, he was in second year ag economics, and that's when we met. Yeah, and you teamed up? Yes, fairly fairly quickly actually. Yeah, no, we um we just hit it off straight away and I I I did ask him to go away and come back in 2 years time when I was ready to get married. Thanks very much. 24, you're not 24 yet. <laughs> no, that's right. But but no, we had and we had a great team at uni, I think for us because I know our kids ask us, well, what what did you get out of uni? Have you even used your degree? Mm-hmm. And um we certainly have, but also now those people that we were at uni with, it taught us how to research and and where to find information. But all of those people that we were at uni with now, you know, they are working yeah. in amazingly different places and we can now go to them for help and advice. And, oh, well, yes, well, we know what, someone at the CSRO will ask him, where do we go from here? <laughs> so you finished uni. Where did you go after that? I took a year off and came home for a year mm. to help fill in the secretarial role just to help mum and dad out. So then Peter finished uni and we were married and so I still had a year of uni to go and I started working. We were living in Brisbane. I started working for a project, uh, sorry, an agriculture and management consultancy mm. and Peter was working at Elders in the Wool Store. So he was, you know, dealing with all the property owners in wool. He had a fairly good understanding of that, obviously, mm. coming from a sheep property. And when I finished uni, we headed over to England. So we went and went mm. to just do our working holiday 
stint over there and um, we had planned to work in agriculture in Ireland. That's where we were headed. We never we never quite got there. The old choice family connections to <laughs> Ireland, I think. <laughs> so we started off in England and, yeah, Pete got a job working for James Dyson, the inventor. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, going around and training people on how to use the products and promoting them. Are they the vacuum cleaners? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was a vacuum cleaner salesman. Really? <laughs> But um, but then he quickly moved into marketing there, so in Dyson. So that gave us a – it was great because we got out of London. So they are based in the middle mm. of England and we lived on farms where we were living and then I would, I would mostly work in admin, but I worked for the Department of Agriculture over there and some of their banks and their big investment companies and we just learnt so much more about yeah. – how they farm differently because we still had that interest and we still had friends over there that were on farms and it's actually my sister was a vet and she was over there at that time and that was when foot and mouth went wild in England Mm. so what was it like did the world just come to a stop well yeah so over over there it did so but um like think COVID lockdowns for a farm like that's so basically animals that had it, they were just shooting them and burning them in big piles, burying them, like throwing them in pits, burning them in big piles because they couldn't leave that mm. property. They had a rule, and they had a rule in England at the time, There's about the time, um, how long an animal can live for too. Mm. It was horrible. It was, you know, and that, so basically if you've got a grid, they had hay all around the grids and they had wash, wash bays like in a... Mm. SBF piggery so you had to drive your car through wash it down and do boots you had to change your boots at the grid of the Mm. property it was full quarantine and testing so again it was a bit a little bit like the COVID testing and lockdown has been here but for farms that's what it was like and did you want to get out of there at that point did you want to come home is that why you came back to Australia no so it it probably didn't affect um our career as such so we had intended to stay in Europe at that time Um, and it was just it was things were a little uncertain about what that visa would look like and we were due to have our first child so we felt it would probably be prudent of us to come home rather than try and cart child and baggage back if things didn't work out so at that point we came back mum and dad again needed a a secretary and someone to kind of help, help on the farm so we gave them three months and said, okay, we'll come back. Mm. And anyway, they bought a second property and we ended up moving on to there and we really haven't... Was that Woolshed? Yes. So they bought it because they had wanted to start expanding because yes. they knew, okay, there's a couple of our kids might be interested. Mm. Let's look at what we can do. They had bought a, another property, a small block in, mm. I don't know, 10 years prior or something. Mm as well so they just wanted to expand their holdings and it was a coincidence that it happened when we were here but yeah we'd intended to go back to England and continue working marketing and consultancy so no we moved to this other property and started cell grazing and trading cattle. So you really got into holistic farming through um, RCS? So we'd we'd done a grazing for profit through RCS and so when we came back and we'd bought a cell grazing property we thought well we can give this a go Peter and my uncle Shane both went to a biodynamics course and my sister and they were very interested in it and then Shane and Pete went and did a lot of work in biodynamics after that and and this is about rebuilding soil health building the carbon reducing the amount of inorganic inputs that you're putting into the country 
That's right. And we did it being with a little bit of scientific background. Every time Pete wanted to apply a new product and I would say, no, it has to be a controlled experiment. And because we had cell grazing, we could do that. We could work off a central Mm. water, treat one of the paddocks with something and not the other. Mm. Basically, after the first six months, I said, don't experiment anymore. Just put it out wherever you want it because we couldn't visibly necessarily see the difference. But the cattle, the area that we had treated with the um, biodynamic product, the cattle wouldn't leave that. So we'd open the gate for them to go to the fresh mm. paddock and sell grazing and they wouldn't leave their paddock. And we had leukina and they would eat it down to the sticks on the ground rather than move on to the fresh leukina in the non-treated paddock. Their skin looked healthier and they they looked healthier. They went hairy and... Mm. Um, Did that have an impact on you and in, in terms of your own health and how to manage your own health? Yes, very much so because I... I was also quite pedantic at the time about what we ate and mm. what that did for us. So I had a, a couple of my kids had a few uh, behavioural challenges. So I was experimenting with food about what what mm. change, you know, is there something they're eating? Is there something that they're actually taking in? So I think it all, it all went hand in hand. Yeah. The challenge for any farming family is what to do with the property in the next generation who will get the farm, and how will the assets be reasonably shared? Nikki Marnie says succession planning was a long, slow process for the Burnett-Joyce family. She says the keys were honesty, the establishment of clear goals for each family member, and having an independent facilitator. Both Pete's family side of things and my family side of things had actually started having family meetings, facilitated family meetings, to just talk about whatever I might want or where they're headed. How old were your parents at that stage, do you think? Gosh, I'm going to say 50. I'm going to have to think far too hard about that, but they were quite young still. And that was very unusual. I mean, were your peers, your friends on other properties, were their family doing the same thing at that age? No, absolutely not. (laughs) And it, it wasn't mum and dad's impetus. Dad wanted us basically to make a decision. You know, he was like, oh, I want to know what you want so I can make a plan and... Anyway, having ourselves been involved in facilitation and project management and my sister's husband, he also had an interest in that area. So they'd by then done a few courses in communication. And so it was something that we felt would work to start that discussion. And we thought, well, vision and goal setting, because it wasn't something that people were taught really as a, as a general rule at the time. And so... That's how we started. We said, all right, let's just do a vision and goal setting and see where we want to go. And it started out as a business thing and then we developed it into an annual family thing. Dad was Dad was not keen, but he was happy to give it a go. And then I think he was quite surprised at how well it worked and how much people were telling him that he wasn't actually getting out of them before. But you said a key to – there are many – essential things that you need to do if you're going to do a successful succession plan or any sort of succession plan. But for you, having a facilitator was very, very important. Why was that? So the facilitator gives you someone else in the room to concentrate on. So if you're trying to hold this talk yourself, number one, you tend to sit down at a place that's your home. So if it if, if it was my father, for example, well, he'd basically be in charge of the meeting. We'd be at his house and he's got the high ground. So that's psychologically, that's how it works. So you've got a facilitator. They just immediately take any kind of, 
you don't have to talk immediately to the person you would like to address. Mm. You can address a third party and tell them how you feel. You don't have to look the other person in the eye. Like it's all these little basic things that you Mm. wouldn't think matter, but it makes a huge difference. And also the facilitator holds um, the order, as it were. So they'll Mm. say, this is how it runs. We'll go around and talk to each of you first about what you expect out of the meeting. Mm. And then I'll come back to me and then we'll go through and talk about what your hopes are for yourselves or where you might see yourselves. And, you know, so they do several rounds and by... And does by, every partner get a say in this or only the members of the family? No. So we started off as just our family members mm. um, because we thought it would just be an easier way to yeah. start. But very quickly, like those of us that had serious partners, they mm. very quickly became part of that um, plan so within within the first year like the first the first one we we held was family only but very quickly we started involving other people um, we had we had a couple of really good facilitators that and what happened was we made a we made a um, conscious decision to have our family meetings away and have a holiday so we would go to the beach mm. so it was no it was no in nobody's area. And we would also have a – so we'd have our facilitated meeting and then we'd have the weekend mm. afterwards. And sometimes the facilitator stayed with us the whole time. Yeah. So one time we went to Stradbroke Island and there was wild weather, so she had no choice but to stay for a few days. <laughs> and because family was so important to us, we needed to know that we could have a meeting and mm. still be able to socialise yeah. afterwards as well. So I think that if we hadn't had a facilitator – we would have we would have had meetings and agreed with things, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near as honest. So little little things like if you're going to if you're doing it yourself, what you how you might phrase things is like someone will say, "What about holidays?" and you know the father might say, "What well, you don't want more holidays, do you?" Yeah. And that's already priming you to go, "Oh, well, no, it's okay. I, I yeah. suppose it's all right." Whereas you come around and you say, and they'll say, "What about holidays?" Like most people get four hol- four weeks holidays a year. What yeah. do you get? And suddenly you're drawing this information out that's factual, mm. that's not accusing. That's not it's playing the game. It's not playing the man. I think that's what it comes back to, isn't it? That's right. You're getting, you're getting facts out of people yeah. and they're not feeling like they're, having, they're betraying anyone or there's any judgment attached to that. And everyone knows that they have their turn to talk. So if anyone else is jumping in, the facilitator's job basically is to say, well, you will get to you later. And there are many things, and you wrote about this on, in a blog, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever read in terms of succession planning. And why did you write about it in a blog? I suppose I'd just seen something one day, hope is not a business strategy, and I just thought, well, that's, that's right. And our family had managed to achieve successful succession planning in both of our families. So in Peter's family, they actually agreed to sell the family farm. That's where it all came to with that one. And it was fantastic because it would have been a really hard decision to come to without having those facilitated meetings. There would have perhaps always been a little bit of angst of I wasn't asked properly or you don't you don't know. So it removed all of that and it was an agreed family decision for everyone. It was the same with ours. So we still had our family relationships. So one of the other things that Dad did do was we had always been paid wages here. Yeah. So... Nobody could have any false expectations of I've spent two years on the property unpaid and you've only spent this amount of time. 
we did a lot of work on being fair, fair is not even. What does that mean, fair is not even? Mm. So let's say uh, we've got, for example, my family's case, they've got three properties. One's quite big, which mm. was Garanda, but also has a massive debt and a start and it's complicated um, operation with staff, etc. Another quite small block, which is lovely, but no house, and they'd probably need something else with it. And then another property that could run itself essentially and then they have shares and investments so how do you best provide for the future of everyone you can't just say well one person's going to get it or so what you do is you open that up for discussion with the family if everyone's involved in trying to decide what would be fair without thinking who might be the person who would be in line to get any of it if anyone everyone kind of comes to the same conclusion without it seeming like well hang on I got the smaller bit or there's an understanding there of how it's very difficult, but basically understanding the responsibility. So, for example, with Garanda, part of the actual responsibility was that you, we take over, you buy into the place, we also buy out, as in buy, uh, provide something for the others extra. So if someone wanted to buy a house, we take over the loan and this property is responsible for that debt. But also we are responsible for mum and dad as well. So the, the, bigger, the bigger part, portion of the mm. asset is also expected to support mum and dad into, mm. into when they, whenever they go. With the 15-year succession planning process in train, Nikki saw a window of opportunity to fulfil a dream, a dream that would see Nikki, Peter and the four kids all under seven, spent 18 months living in a French village. And we had always had a plan from when we'd been in England to move back to Europe, um, to a non-English speaking country, to just experience that. Initially the plan was to be in Europe and, um, and for one year and then maybe go to an African or an Indian country for the next mm. year as, um, I suppose, for community work with the kids. But... Honestly, the kids were so small, I was just worried that they all, they'd all just get dysentery and we'd have to come home. And once we'd been in France for a year, they'd just really started to settle into what the system was and the seasons and we just ended up staying there. So that was kind of the main reason we went to France because we'd always wanted to do it and we did see this window of opportunity and if my brother chose that he didn't want to be here, Miranda was not the type of operation you could just up and leave from in two years. And so was it everything you expected in France? I mean, I know, I know you tried to study French, but not being a, a native French speaker, going to a village in France must have been pretty challenging. Uh, it was definitely challenging. <laughs> <laughs> the, kid, the kids loved it. The youngest one just constantly ran away from school, even though he supposedly loved it. So we'd get someone from the school would come and visit us. We lived on a biodynamic farm at the school so it was part of an old chateau so everything was very grand and was like living in a fairy tale but it was very basic too so we were it was a Steiner community so it was like we were living in a commune Mm. and we were referred to as the meat eaters (laughs) in the commune (laughs) it was different for all of us my daughter thought she would hate it she was so scared about she was seven when we went and it ended up being an experience that changed her life very definitely I thought it would be amazing for the boys because it was a whole new way of learning. 
and it it was it was wonderful for them but it changed Josephine's life and yeah. I hadn't really even I did I thought it would be hard for her in what way did it change her life do you think apart from having to speak French and it being a Steiner school mm. so it was very different art and music were huge it was a huge part of what they did so everybody in that school learned at least one musical mm. lesson they had um, choir practice every single day before school and everyone had to participate and you were put into different sections mm. of the choir and you had to sing different parts. It wasn't even an option of whether you mm. wanted to or not. And art was in every single lesson. Mm. And so here they were just immersed and nobody was thinking, well, I don't want to learn recorder because everyone was just doing it, yeah. so they did it. So, yes, they learnt guitar, piano, violin, recorder, like... Every, everyone learnt something different that they really wouldn't have got into here. Has that transferred to life back in Australia for them? Yes, definitely. So we came back and the kids all went back to the state school here and they loved being back home. And then when we were choosing boarding schools, Josephine chose to go to a school that had a French immersion program, but also she... Um, was able to get an all-rounder scholarship for arts and drama. She may not have even looked into those things as an interest had we not been over there for that. And the boys all are into design and construction and it's become a very big interest and they, one of them really appreciates music. So they've all done a little bit with music. Mm. But again, I don't think it's something they might have fallen into without mm. having had a little bit of that exposure. Yeah. But just the experience of being overseas and not just being there as a tourist on holiday for, th- for 18 months must have been wonderful to see the country, get to know the people. That's right. Pete also studied while he was over there. Yeah. So he was doing a lot. He um, did his real estate licence while he was over there and basically the business we were looking to move into or develop yeah. was um, biological farming and lining up financial investors with biological farmers who wanted to expand yeah. their operations in Australia. So... We had that well and truly, well, Peter had that well and truly developed by the time we came back here. So that he essentially was taking that time for himself to learn and study and I was I was taking that time to learn as well. So I had a teacher teaching me piano and guitar and Pete learnt the violin. Right, He'd never picked up a musical mm. instrument in his life. So we just took that time out to just learn something different that we might never, never do again. If and when COVID allows us to do international travel, would you recommend your experience to other people? Because it sort of sounds like a bit of a dream, but I know it wasn't just a dream. It was hard work. Yeah, it, it, was, it was quite tough to organise and, and, and tough to pull off because we did miss home too. You know, like thing, the world continues on without you back here. We have a whole other life back there. The one thing, I, I would definitely recommend it to people. I would recommend it to people when their kids are younger, when... Yeah when it doesn't it doesn't it's not going to have that much of an impact on their schooling so my kids all came back having missed one and a half years of school and my son went into grade three not being able to read or write and it was tough like he was failing school when he first came back here but he graduated grade 12 getting a's and b's so they all just slotted back and they really loved it and they and they talk about it regularly the one reason we did come home because you know we've obviously got the chance to maybe stay or to apply for a visa maybe not France but maybe England or somewhere Australia provides so much more opportunity to just get in and have a go compared to European countries like especially France 
So they have a very strict system. They don't like people stepping outside the square too much. So it's really hard to be innovative and to to start your own business and make mm. a real go of it over there. So we really loved the experience. We loved the food. We loved how healthy everything was, certainly where we were living. But as far as opportunity for our children went, we knew that the place to be was in Australia. But at that time, had Dan, your brother, decided that he no longer wanted to be at Garanda? No. So we came back. Um, yeah. I started working in alternative uh, well, complementary medicine. So I was training. Mm. I was looking at training to be a kinesiologist and yeah. I'd gone into mental health. So we came back after the 2010-11 floods. Um, so, yes, I actually was working um, in town in men's mental health and Pete was back looking at developing this project further and my brother said, do you guys want to swap? What was your reaction? <laughs> well, we were a little dumbfounded, but we, then we said, well, you know, we, we do have an attitude of just always being open to ideas or the opportunity. So we never say no to anything immediately. We say, well, let's talk about it. So we did. We talked about it. And it, it was another two family meetings and a lot of conversations and hard conversations later. That's pretty much what happened. Were you able to come in on your own terms as a consequence of the succession planning and, and do what you wanted to do? Because this is a legacy property. Mm. I mean, it, you were the third or fourth generation to come on it yourself, Pete, and it's got an incredible reputation. Were you able to come on in your own terms? As part of our family succession leading uh, meetings leading up to that, Peter and I did, you know, we had expressed an interest. But we, at the time, we had some very strict terms under the conditions that we would come back because I knew I wouldn't cope with the pressure otherwise. I would stress too much about expectations. We had a couple of um, non-negotiables and one was that we wouldn't move back without being able to move into the main house because no one would consider us to really be in charge and that we had to have some ownership. At the time, Mum and Dad were not willing for that to happen. So Dan, there was another house here and Dan and his wife lived there. So they thought, no, this is, this works for us now. But basically, when we came back, they understood the conditions that we wanted to come back mm. under and they, at that stage, were ready because they, they did then want to go travelling. Like when, when Dan... Yeah, so when Dan had come back, yeah. they were thinking, you know, we're slowing down here, it's fantastic. Mm. They didn't want to be winding back up again. Yeah. Dan also didn't necessarily want the stud, so they were in the process of selling down the stud at the time, looking to see which way they wanted to go. And were you able to grow the stud on your own terms? Yes, we certainly had our own ideas. We tried to just continue on and learn as much as we could in those initial years. We tried a few different new ways of doing things that weren't so much with the stud cattle, but it was more in more biodynamics, different different sorts of management of the cropping areas and some of the pastures and marketing. And were you working as a team, you and, and you and Pete, on and developing those ideas? Yes. So carrying on, we'd have a business, a facilitated business meeting at least once a year with someone and then ourselves just to actually sit down, nut out a plan, think about what our ideas are. Um, and then we'd also have one with the staff that worked here. We changed the way we managed staff as well. So we tried to make it far more formal 
and it was really tricky. Staff was probably the hardest thing for us to manage in those early years and we did have a high turnover. It was interesting because Dad said when he first took over, that's what changed, was staff turnover went up. And I think it is to do with the stress and the pressure you put yourself under as new people coming in. And as soon as we'd kind of got to a stage where we were more settled, we knew we were in charge, we knew what we were doing, staff turnover went down and everyone, everyone that was working here felt far more settled and happy. And you, at this point in time, you've got to mention Meryl, yes. your long-serving cook. Uh, and and she was telling me she was your governess in the early days. Meryl has been here for 37 years as the Garanda cook. She must have played an incredibly important part in keeping everyone sane as well as associated. Oh, uh, yeah. So what Meryl enables us to do is phenomenal because the fact that one of us is not taken out with doing the cooking for all of the staff and everyone else. Like, it means you can put in a full day's work. You know, everyone can leave early, come back late and still have good, solid meals. You know their nutrition's being looked after. She was very definitely part of the furniture. And for my mum, someone who was willing to keep Meryl was a big part of the succession. Mm. And it definitely was not something that my my brother and his wife were not keen on. They wanted to be able to cook for themselves. Mm. And for me... I'd grown up with that, so it wasn't such a big step to take. My kitchen is not my own, but for me the sacrifice is worth it. And Meryl has seen all of us grow up. She she came here when I was nine years old, and she's also seen all of my children grow up. She is very definitely part of the furniture and um, part of our family. Nikki says life at Garand is like a revolving door. They host many visitors, scientists and interns. In addition, Nikki and Peter run a unique program supporting grey nomads who live and work on the property. But life was never meant to be easy. A few years ago, Nikki got in the way of a gate and suffered a horrible head injury. Then Peter was diagnosed with the big C, bowel cancer. Yeah, so Pete was diagnosed with um, bowel cancer and it was a very late diagnosis because it was being confused for Giardia and several other smaller things and it was considered terminal at the time that he was first diagnosed. So suddenly we were faced with a situation where we could potentially be losing a key person, I suppose purely business-wise, out of our business, but what that also meant for our family. So... We spent a lot of time in Brisbane. We chose to go to Brisbane um, because that's where the children were at boarding school. So we thought at least we could be somewhere close to them. At the same time, my dad was receiving treatment for prostate cancer and he had been receiving that for nine years. So that was a process they were going through, but it was seemingly under control. So, yes, it it immediately forced us to reprioritise or to at least rethink things and... I mean, that must have rocked your socks, so to speak. Well, it did because it it was slightly complicated because um, I'd actually had a massive head injury a couple of years prior and we weren't really sure if I'd ever really come good. So I'd had a gate hit my, a steel gate hit my head and um, I couldn't do, I couldn't even do more than three numbers on the computer. So I very, luckily we had some grey nomads here working for us. So she was 
she well and truly she was already managing the accounts but she basically took over everything so we had really for two years kind of been looking after me and I'd been taking it relatively easy and not being do, not doing too much I hadn't ridden a horse for two years and a few things like that so then suddenly I was thrown it was thrown the other way so suddenly Pete was taken out of the equation and we ba- we did have to decide how we were going to manage this because it could be it could be that he was gone forever or it could just be that he was taken out for you know at least a couple of months or several years so we had in what everything that Pete and I had ever planned to do we always thought would we want to do this if the other person was not here and because it was a big part of taking over Garanda like if one of us wasn't here would the other one want to do it if I didn't want to be here would Pete want to do it I suppose that was probably the question we'd asked ourselves was if I wasn't here, would Pete still want to do it? So suddenly I was faced with, well, if Pete's not going to be here, do I want to do this? And I think basically where I came to was I don't want to do this alone. It's a massive job and and what Pete, the part of the job that Pete does is not my forte. So he's the visionary, he's the strategic planner. I basically make sure everything happens. And I like that job. I'm good at organising and sorting all the little bits out. So, yeah, it, it was a challenge. So I basically took over the outside role. Pete's role? Pete, well, because Pete was doing the outside work, yeah. as well, obviously, as well as the strategic planning. And we did have – we had other staff here. We had senior stockmen and a lot of other junior staff, interns. We have a lot of grey nomads come and go yeah. who are essential to our yeah. business. So yes, we we did a lot of heavy thinking and it basically fast-tracked our succession talks yeah. with our children. Yeah. At that point in time, Pete is looking at death's door, really. Yes, yeah, so my daughter, funnily enough, also at the same time, so she'd gone overseas, she was having her gap, gap year. So she'd gone overseas and she'd left very happily and when she got to England, they uh, interrogated her, detained her and deported her, so... <laughs> She'd, she'd already had one big hiccup for the year, so they, because she was under 18, they thought she was part of a um, child sex slave ring. <laughs> and then they, uh, they basically told her she was here to work illegally because she wasn't 18 and she was staying with someone who owned a farm and she wasn't paying accommodation. So they sent her home and she had to work for another two months to earn the money to, to, go, back to go back again. So she'd fought a fair bit to get over there and then Pete was diagnosed and she wanted to come home immediately and I said well no you let's just let's just wait and see so it's quite stressful for her because she was not able to be with the family immediately but in the end she decided so basically Pete was diagnosed we went to Brisbane immediately just to sort of see what was happening this is all leading up to our sale of course and um so and things went quite pear shaped very quickly. So the operation was successful. He, they thought they'd got everything, and he was recovering. And then something a rupture happened, and it everything went pear shaped very quickly for him. And he he did very nearly die. Um, and at that point, yes, his daughter decided she was coming home yeah. because she just she just felt that she couldn't stay over there and yeah. in case something happened. So once she came home, she did come back here and help me basically so and she was amazing and the kids basically from then you know 
they we did expect them to work every holidays, but there was a fair bit of whinging. Yeah. <laughs> they just stepped up and they've never stopped. Like they just their whole attitude changed and they just really stepped up and tried to do far more than yeah. they ever had before and they transformed within a couple of school holidays. Must have been so mean mean something to you, but also so needed by you. And I think this is where your connection to local community too has been incredibly important in helping Pete get through what's been a pretty terrible time with a series of you know nightmare cancer experiences. Mm. Yes, and I think Pete was very astound. He was astounded with how many people cared. I think and how much it affected people because there's plenty of people that go put those kits mm. back on the shelf and, you know, Pete was far too young to even qualify for getting it. He was only 43. Mm, that's right. So Pete was 43 when he was diagnosed, which means he'd had it since he was 41. Mm. So there was a lot of people that got scared thinking, here's a perfectly healthy person who's younger than me and... He, he might be about to go. I better actually get that kid out and look after my health. Do you think it impacted on the local community in getting tested or using those kits? Oh, yeah. There, were, there was a rush. <laughs> there was a rush at the doctors to book their colonoscopies. There's also some research that it's, it's an increasing prob- problem in males. Yes. One of the radiologists we saw, he said, this is our biggest growth area, bowel cancer in young males and specifically on the left-hand side. Does he put it down to anything? No, he, do, he, he doesn't know. He, he assumes it's something to do with diet or lifestyle and there's always, stress has always got something to do with it. Yeah, he's talking the 30 to 40 year age bracket in males. And are there any moves afoot to um, get young males tested for bowel cancer? I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that certainly those in the, you know, the surgeons and the radiologists are pushing to move that testing that's currently in place for over 50s back to 40s. But it's basically education too. So we did ask about, so all of Pete's family immediately were tested and they all had precancerous polyps, all of his other siblings. So we did ask about, well, what about our children? You know, do they need to go and have a genetic test? And our surgeon said to us, he said, I wouldn't bother. They need to be aware. They need Mm -hmm. to be aware what the symptoms are and that obviously they do now have a family history. He said, but having a genetic test doesn't mean you're going to get it. It might just mean that they're more stressed about it. But he felt that having a genetic test was an irrelevant part of the process as long as you were aware. And the reality is if Pete had been aware of what some of those symptoms might have meant. I mean, he had been to the doctors several times, but... Just, I think because of his age, it just was something that wasn't triggered and it was only when he actually went back to our normal community doctor who had been our doctor for years that it was the first thing he said we need to rule out. Hmm. And what did it mean for you personally as about writing about it in, uh, on social media, writing about Pete's predicament? Immediately my biggest issue was keeping everyone informed. Pete's family, but then... Friends would want to know and I was just managing so many texts and emails and some people not knowing and others knowing it and I didn't know who knew what. We'd always decided to be quite honest about things that had happened in our family. We've had a couple of incidents that have affected our family and we've always been very honest about the reality. And for me, I'd always been a journal writer. 
So I kept a diary and that's how I processed things. So for me, I was already writing and processing that way. So I thought, well, this might be the easiest way to keep people informed. And I knew for it to be relevant to me, then I had to speak from the heart. And the response to your your posts? The reality is that another good friend of mine who, who had bowel cancer, he got in touch with me and he and Pete, started communicating and he would visit Pete in hospital every time where he was coming in for for chemo and um it has uh it's been a challenging part of the journey because he's since died um but the they both are very grateful for the time that um that they well that they had and the support that they were able to show each other and yeah I think it was important for both of them but it, it meant a lot to us and it meant a lot to their family Do you think it's unusual that blokes talk? It is to a certain degree because I think what they tend to do is um, try to make everyone feel like it's okay. So they might, they'd be willing to talk about it but be saying, you know, it's all good. And even Pete, like I think part of the problem when things went pear-shaped is the nurses would come in and say, well, how is it? And he'd say, it's pretty bad. Whereas he probably should have said, it's it's really bad. I think I'm going to pass out. It's a 10 out of 10 for pain. And so they tend to sort of try and make everyone else feel comfortable with the situation, probably more so, rather than, yes, they're downplaying it, but they're also saying, yes, it's a bit rough, but I'm okay. You know, we'll get there. There's a tendency to try and help others feel okay about it, perhaps, yeah. So while you're going through this and we've got COVID and your dad's deteriorating quite seriously, how did the family cope with that? The family have been quite incredible. We've had a few circumstances where technically our family should be falling apart, but what's happened is everyone's just really, they've come together and they've stepped up. And it's not just our kids when I'm talking about, I'm talking about my siblings, Pete's siblings and other community members, but our family as a whole. So when dad's condition started deteriorating, um, one of my sisters just dropped everything and came up here to help mum look after him because we just couldn't, I couldn't physically do it either mum couldn't physically continue I couldn't physically help as much as I needed to it was just impossible to get any other help out here and he wanted to be able to die at home that was his he really wanted to be here he didn't want to go back he'd been treated at the at a Sunshine Coast hospital and he loved it down there but when he knew that he was coming to the end he didn't want to be down there Hmm. so it really, it was a really special time for us. It was really hard, but it was special. And it was the same with Pete. Like, it was a really special time for us as a family because everyone was stepping up and they were they were basically asking themselves, what is my priority? And it, it just fast-tracked a lot of conversations. And, and I think one of your sisters said to you that having done the succession planning was so important to being able to accept your father's death, but also to not enjoy the experience, but be part of it, allow him to, to, to pass on. That's right. She just said to me one day, I just want to thank you and Pete so much for pushing this because at the start it did feel like we were pushing really for this communication to start happening. And she said if we didn't have this sorted, we'd be dealing with a mess because everyone's in, already in an emotional mess. We know that Dad's dying in the back of your mind would be, well, what's actually going to happen with all of this split up that we have to do? And 
we all felt that it gave us the freedom to just say goodbye is, is how it felt. Like it just felt like there were no hidden caveats or clauses to consider. No one else had any other agenda that needed to be going on in how they spoke to each other. We were just there for Dad and we were just there to be able to say goodbye to him. And it was it just gave us such a freedom that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't discussed and organised and sorted succession. Bernard Fitzpierce Joyce died peacefully in the Theodore Hospital on May the 21st, 2021. Nikki wrote a wonderful piece for the Queensland Country Life, reflecting on her dad's life, his partnership of close to 50 years with his wife Louise and his massive contribution to the cattle industry. Nikki described her father as a no-fuss cattleman. She said his legacy was best summarised by the songwriter Graham Connors. If I've lived and loved too hard, I've made good use of my time. I leave the world a better place in the love I've left behind. You're listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Life on the land can be tough, but the people who live there choose to live where they live. And there is a sense of community you won't find in the city. Peter's battle with cancer was tough, but the family pulled together, and 2021 saw an excellent stud sale at Garanda. 79 classified bulls topped at $85,000 to average $13,000. But even better, Peter was given a clean bill of health after two difficult years battling bowel cancer. This allows Nikki and Peter and their four children, Josephine, Christopher, Patrick and Dominic, to plan for the future. That's right, yeah. So he had his first all clear the other day, which was completely unexpected, mm-hmm. certainly any time up until now. So now we have to relook at our succession with the thought that he might be around for a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, it's certainly given us some breathing space. But for me, it doesn't take away how important that succession discussion is. Like, I think that it's really... Those experiences have cemented in all of us just how important it is to have started that discussion. And we've had other friends and families in a situation where they are left with a mess and it's it's not been good for their families afterwards. Well, it's and, not good for their health as well. I mean, just you, the mental stress and train. And that, and, and your own experience has said that that can really make you very, very sick. I, I think that's right. With just the chronic stress, chronic underlying stress that you... I've, I'm very aware that it can it can affect you and I've been very diligent about trying to manage that in my life and yet the body still goes down so your body is subconsciously so good at buffering when you've been so used to it and it happens a lot more in the country and it happens a lot more with men sadly and just in terms of those succession planning with the kids they've all got the choice that they want to make about their future but it seems that you and Pete are there to support them that's right, and even so we did have some very um, hard-hitting conversations with them early on. Um, we made it very clear to them that this didn't change where they should be going in their life. So mm-hmm. what I didn't want is to someone to say, right, well, I finished grade 10, I'll leave school and come look after the farm then, mm-hmm. and then end up regretting it 10, mm-hmm. 20 years later. So we 
basically sat down with them, explained how the business was set up, mm. how our life insurance was set up to be able to cover a manager for a few years um, to give us space to decide. And we said, nothing has changed. We want you to go and do what you would like to do. But in 10 years' time, we expect a decision, whether we're here or not, you know. So we have this, we want, we've started the conversation we want them to talk about it and to think about it amongst themselves, but to also because they're they're still just kids, like they're yeah. still just learning and growing and having new discoveries. They want to travel, they want to do other things, and they should. But the response, all we're asking for them is that we've given them a time frame to work with, and regardless yeah. of whether we're here or not, we've explained that a plan is in place to be able to ensure they can still do that. Thanks to Nikki Marnie for letting me visit her at Garanda. You can catch her blog on social media. It's called Farmer Wants a Life Less Ordinary. It's a great blog. You've been listening to Postcards from the Bush with Robin McConkie. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app and leave me a review. Music was composed and presented by Luke Aidney. (laughs) 